Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we're joined by Vicki Lenz. Vicki is the author of Poor Justice, How the Poor Fare in Court, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. Vicki, welcome. Thank you. So um, I'm wondering before we turn our attention to the book, if you could talk a little bit um, about your own background, your professional experience, perhaps, and um, what it is that led you to this particular book. Well, I started out as a social work student, um, very much involved in, in that profession and very much involved in community organizing aspect of it and wanting to change things, change the world, the typical thing that a 19-year-old wants to do. Uh, but then I went on to law school um, thinking that being a lawyer would give me more power to do that. And so I spent several years as a legal aid attorney and part of my um, focus then was on welfare and um, homelessness. This was back in the 1980s when homelessness wasn't even on the public agenda and there were no laws at that point specifically um, directed at helping the homeless. And um, I worked on litigation to establish a right to shelter in New York with the Coalition for the Homeless and did other welfare-related class actions and also representing clients at fair hearings. Um, I then went on to the New York State Attorney General's office and did um, public advocacy type work. And this was prosecuting businesses for economic exploitation and fraud and generally as a public advocate. I then went on and went back to social work, um, got a PhD in social work, and now I combine both social work and the law in my research and in my teaching. Um, so, so this is ultimately a book about poor people's, poor people's experience with the American criminal justice system, among other things. Um, who do you think of as the principal audience for the book? Well, primarily the civil justice system, yeah. with a little bit to um, address the criminal justice. So the primary audience is students. Um, I've been teaching law and social work for uh, many years, and I found that it's an important thing for students to know about, but they often don't understand, for example, how the Supreme Court really works, what an opinion reads like, um, how the lower courts function. So my audience is, is students, but also um, anyone interested in that works with marginalized groups, that works with poor people and wants to understand really what it's like within these institutions, um, a very much on the ground kind of feel for what it's like to walk into a courtroom, for example, when your child is there threatening to remove your child and to be in a court setting with a bunch of professionals and a judge and what it's like um, in general to bring social reform litigation, litigation to change things for the many. So it's also written for people who want to learn about that um, and who are interested in it among the general public and students. Terrific. Um, so why don't we so so why don't we sort of start working our way through the book? And you've got it broken up into three sections that very much aligns with with what it is that you just said. The first 
um, which he calls street level justice, focuses principally on welfare recipient and child welfare cases. Uh, second, you you talk about uh, sort of stepping up a level a bit and talking about social reform litigation, which talks about uh, disability and homelessness in particular. And then finally, uh, turn your attention to the Supreme Court with some particular attention on race cases. Um, so why don't we start with that first section um, focusing on uh, what are called fair hearings for welfare recipients. Uh, and then maybe we can turn our attention to the subsequent chapter, which looks at abuse and neglect. So so what's a fair hearing uh, and, and where does it come from and why should we care about it? So fair hearings are probably the largest civil justice system that we have because it's an administrative hearing. So it's not in the court system per se. It's referred to as a quasi-judicial um, proceeding. And it's where people who have been receiving public benefits, whether it's food stamps or welfare, Medicaid, and when the agency makes a mistake, because we know that um, welfare bureaucracies are known for making mistakes, or when there's a dispute as to whether somebody's entitled to a benefit or not, this is the forum where people go to appeal a denial of benefits. And it's set up as an adversarial process. There's an administrative law judge there, and then there's a representative from the agency, and then the person whose benefits were cut. And it's designed... With those rules in mind, although relaxed a bit, because it's not, as I said, in a formal courtroom. So it's the one place within the system where somebody who thinks that the government has erroneously denied their benefits can go and appeal and try and, and write it and to, and to continue receiving their benefits. And since these are subsistence level benefits, these are the monies people use to feed their families, pay their rent, it's really important that there be some mechanism for overturning a mistake or an error so people can secure their benefits. And to jump ahead a bit, these these exist because of one of those sort of landmark uh, rights decisions from the Supreme Court in the 1960s, correct? Yes. The key to that is this is the Goldberg v. Kelly decision, is that they've always been a part of the welfare system when it was passed in the 1935. Um, there was a provision there to allow people to appeal the denial of benefits, but it was after the benefits were cut off, right. which for people in such a vulnerable position and it could take very long to restore them. The court said at that point that due process required a hearing before the termination of benefits. Mm -hmm. So um, under this system, if you receive a notice that your benefits are being denied or reduced or discontinued, you have a 10-day period to ask for a fair hearing. And if you do it, well, you have a 60-day period. But if you ask for it within the first 10 days, then your benefits stay the same throughout the process. So you never lose benefits until that final decision by the administrative law judge. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to guess that it's fair to say that the majority of the folks who are listening to this conversation have probably uh, never had this experience for themselves. It has never been precisely in this position. So I wonder if you could sort of walk people through um, what is the experience of that fair hearing from the perspective of the person challenging that either unfair denial of benefits or the revocation of benefits? So one of the interesting things about fair hearings, and I've seen them both as an advocate, the attorney representing a client, then as a researcher observing them. So I've seen hearings both with an attorney present and with no attorney present, is that um, it's really often dependent on the judge and how the judge responds. Um, so this is a thing that, you know, we like to think of the court system and hearings as a very regulated process where justice is dispensed equally and fairly. And that it's not up to whether you had a, a, quote, good judge or a bad judge. 
Um, but what's very interesting is, is how judges really have a lot of power to control the process. They work within the confines of the law. So that doesn't mean that there's an arbitrary decision that violates the law. But the judges make crucial decisions about um, how opening and, and receptive they will be to evidence, um, to what a person has to say. Um, it, it's their approach to applying the regulations. There's always wiggle room in regulations. Um, their sort of um, view of who's coming before them in that room so that um, if you have a judge who's sensitive to what it's like to be on welfare, who has sort of a positive bias towards it versus judges who have a negative bias towards it and tend to stereotype people as they come in. So one of the things to think about, which all lawyers think about when, when they file a case, the first question they ask is, who's the judge? Because you know that's going to influence the outcome in some way. Um, so one of the things that, that's interesting about the process is that um, it could vary from hearing room to hearing room in terms of how much people get to speak and how respected they are and how fair the judge is. That fairness is something very much in the judge's hands. Um, but the, and they're also informal. So um, imagine you're coming in and you're not in a courtroom. Um, these are the hearings that I observed in New York. You're in essentially the judge's office set up with a table extending out with the agency representative on one side and the appellant on the other side. Um, and so in some ways it feels like a somewhat um, informal conversation. Mm-hmm. And the judge is not doesn't have robes. Um, the judge is sitting at the head of the desk and the judge directs the conversation. Um, And so it feels informal, but there's definitely an imbalance in the room because often the agency comes with a stack of papers and all this information about the person and the appellant um, mostly always unrepresented. There's not enough attorneys. There's no right to an attorney in these proceedings. This is not something the public defender's office covers, correct? No, this is something that legal aid which are nonprofit organizations not connected to government, but which can receive government funding. And so they have units of lawyers that help people, but way small. Just not enough to go around. Right. There was something like 80,000 hearings in one year in New York City. Um, 80,000. 80,000. That's why (laughs) it's one of the largest civil justice systems when you think about it. Um, And so you have an imbalance of power. And so you have somebody coming in who doesn't like, know the system the way that the agency or the judge knows it. You have the agency and judge who ostensibly are separate, but actually work together all day and are part of the same welfare bureaucracy, although on different levels. Um, It varies from state to state, but in New York, a judge might is part of the state welfare system and the county is the local county system, but it's still the welfare bureaucracy as a whole. Um, so you've had people that come in and sort of feel like it's stacked against them because they're not represented and they see it as one big bureaucracy. Um, but despite that, um, it's something that appellants very much appreciate. <laughs> um, I, I found that people very much think of the fair hearing system as, as some have described as another bite of the apple when it's a judge that lets them speak freely and, and they feel that they're being uh, fairly judged. Uh, they describe it as a system where they finally got a say. And in fact, um, they win often. In New York, there was an 80 percent success rate in the rest of the state. Um, it was about, it was less than that, but still between 30 and 50 percent in states like Texas. 
there was at least a third of hearing decisions overturned. Um, mm. So it is a useful mechanism, and it's and it keeps people's benefits going. Um, so it's 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 a system that has a lot of value to the people who um, need to use it. Yeah. It's also, I mean, sort of given uh, given that reality is maybe a, a, a piece of evidence about the arbitrariness and the capriciousness sometimes with with those with which those agencies cut off benefits. Right. Success rates. Right. Right. So the other the other piece of it is that, for example, in a, in a city like New York State, that kind of arbitrariness often translated into not having paperwork in order and withdrawing from a hearing. So a lot of the wins are very bureaucratic. So you're not getting to the substance of the problem necessarily and the problems in the agency. But the agency shows up, withdraws because they didn't do the correct notice. They can't find something in the files that they need to prove the case. Um, so in some ways, it's a very bureaucratic system. And while it helps individuals retain their benefits, it does nothing on a widespread basis to change practices that overall are arbitrary and capricious. Right. That's what class action litigation is for. Um, so before we move on to class action, I wonder if you could uh, give us a similar kind of bird's eye overview of of cases that find their way, uh, child welfare cases that find their way into the courts? So the child welfare cases that I've observed are the ones that have to do with um, abuse and neglect and charges of abuse and neglect. So what's interesting about the family court system juxtaposed next to the welfare system is oftentimes it's the same group of people. Mm -hmm. um, there's a high correlation between the two. Sure. Um, and But in this case, in fair hearings, you have... The appellant is taking the offense and, well, they, they've been harmed in some way. Their benefits are at risk, but they decide to appeal. In the family court system, you have um, a more defensive um, posture because you're coming in, the state is coming in, charging you, the parent, um, with neglect or abuse. Um, so you do have an attorney present, um, and it is in a, in a formal court-like um, a proceeding, you know, and so, and it has more of the adversarial system um, rules in place. But it's it's also in in my observations of it a very difficult process um, for the parents to go through. I remember seeing my first hearings, observing them from a social science perspective, and noticing that in a sense they were public humiliation or shaming rituals. You had very, very personal stuff being talked about in open court. In New York, for example, it's not like this in every state. The courtroom is an open place, and anybody could walk in. And so you have a parent's drug history, you have a parent's psychiatric um, status, you have their parenting on full public view. And what was interesting about it in comparison to fair hearings is that the parents were mostly silent. Um, at fair hearings, um, appellants tried to speak. Um, there was usually a clash because they wanted to speak too much about things that weren't the legal issue, but they wanted to explain the whole story. Um, and in family court, you find very subdued parents who uh, <clears throat> are, are surrounded by a bevy of professionals, and they're the center of it, but, but yes, they're on the periphery of what's going on. Um, judges varied in how often they would directly talk um, to to the parents. Sometimes they, they were very formal and tell your client to do X through the attorney as the person is sitting there. Um, other times they would engage in more direct dialogues, again, picking up on that theme of the judge's 
um, way of presiding, their style very much affect what happens in a courtroom. But overall, it's a very intimidating and alienating place. And when you think of family court as it's not a criminal court, the purpose of it is the rehabilitation of families and, and how a person is treated in the courtroom um, is part of that process then it takes on a different um, feel to it when you realize that this is for rehabilitation, but yet it could be very difficult for a parent to stand there and be in that courtroom. Difficult to begin with. These are, are parents that are very much stereotyped and stigmatized. Uh, this is maybe next to the criminal justice system. The worst thing that you could do is harm your, harm your children, not be a good parent. Most of them are women. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult court for them to navigate, even with an attorney. And they often don't. Attorneys provide, you know, good representation, but also they have lots of cases and and they are not part. They are also part of that professional work group. Um, so that sets up a different dynamic in the courtroom also. So, so given your experience and given your own research, do you have a read on what the balance is between the parents who are in that courtroom because there is good evidence of genuine harm uh, for the children living in the household and how much of this is sort of longstanding institutional class bias is about what good parenting looks like. So, this, you know, each case is different. And there are, of course, horrific cases where children are being harmed. And, yeah. and you know, unlike fair hearings where the family's all on one side, here you have children and parents somewhat pitted against each other. Um, and so in, in, in that sense, it's sort of an interesting venue to work in because, these are poor parents, usually people of color, um, but say a social services community might be split a bit about who your most energy should be focused on. Is it the children or is it the parents? So it's, it's a little bit more difficult to, for our professionals to navigate that. But so what was the original question you just asked? Was um, about the so so are, are they there? Are they, are, how many are there because they really have, have created harmful situations for their parent, their children? And how many are there because they're poor and that makes good parenting harder? You know, that's the puzzle. Um, that's the, the idea that the family court is being asked to address problems that are probably a combination of both, right? So you'll have cases where poverty it causes stressors that might result in some form of child neglect. And if you look at it from a holistic systems perspective, you would see it as this family needs structural changes in the society for them to be able to parent better. Um, that the way to address issues like this has to do with poverty, has to do with a lack of resources, has to do with stigma, has to do with a whole range of things. Um, but then you, de you do have children who are in jeopardy. You do have children who have been harmed. And so we're sort of asking the family court and child welfare agencies to somehow correct all of these problems without giving them all the tools to do that. To do that. Um, so it's, again, one of those sort of insurmountable challenges that you have to look to the larger world and structures around them um, to figure out what would really work here. But on a day-to-day -day basis, there are ways within the system with the tools that you do have to try and, and make it work better. And one way to do that, regardless of whether a parent harmed a child or not, or if there's evidence of that, is to treat them with respect, to figure out ways to use whatever resources you have to help them, um, and to not engage what I often saw what I called shaming rituals, where, where parents were being shamed in public, which I didn't think served any purpose um, because you're trying to rehabilitate family. It's not a punishment venue. Um, so why don't we move on now? We've sort of talked about two instances in which we've got what, individuals uh, on a literal case-by-case -case basis uh, uh, 
altering their 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 well-being and their life experience. Why don't we turn our attention to talking a little bit about the class action suits that you had talked about earlier? And you talk about this in uh, two broad categories in the book. The first dealing with people with mental illness, and the second uh, with homelessness. Uh, why don't we start with with talking about people uh, with mental disabilities or mental illness, and and what sort of happened in terms of legislation with and for them? Okay, so. Um, so this is an example, I think, where the courts intervened as a way of addressing a social problem in a somewhat effective way. I think, like anything, there are positives and negatives to court intervention because courts are not social service agencies. They're um, legal venues, but they're able to use the Constitution. They're able to use statutes in a way that can protect people's rights. Mm -hmm. So um, what you saw what the court system did is it, it took, um, you know, ideas of people with psychiatric illnesses who were being shunted away, who were being institutionalized. And one of the original cases, O'Connor v. Donaldson said essentially, you, ju you just can't take people and remove them from society because you find it offensive to be around them, um, that there has to be a danger to themselves or others to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you look at that Supreme Court case and you say, this is an example of where the court intervened where the legislature hadn't and came in and said, um, we can't just warehouse people. And then you have a series of cases, again, where the Constitution is used. This is the Whitney v. Stickney case. Um, I think it was in the 60s. I'm not sure the exact date. Um, where you use the Constitution to not only say that you can't just take people away from society and, and warehouse them, but you also have to care for them when they're there. That you can't, you have to have... Um, conditions that are conducive to treatment, that um, treat people well. So again, you're using the Constitution to give people rights um, and to protect individuals. And so I think in that way, it's a very positive use of the courts. And your your judgment of sort of the the outcome. I mean, it, it it sounds like you're saying that the 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 conditions for people with mental illness are better for that intervention than they would have been without it. Yeah, because when you looked at the case um, that I just mentioned, it ended up with the court ordering all sorts of very concrete changes as to how people were treated. I, I mean, the, this was a story of where the the boys on this particular ward were fed with a bowl in the middle of the floor and no utensils, where they didn't have appropriate sleeping accommodations, where they didn't have activities to help them. So you had the court come in and essentially running or administering, if not directly, indirectly, um, and, and requiring the state to hire social workers, psychiatrists, people that would help. Um, so in that sense, the court intervened and it resulted in an improvement in a social welfare institution. And interestingly enough, with these lawsuits, they can be welcomed by um, by the state because it gives them a way to argue that they need more funds. And so there's a history of people from within the state bureaucracy actually encouraging some of these lawsuits as a way of getting needed resources when they've been unable to do it from Within inside the bureaucracy. It's a way to sort of serves as a wedge with the legislature to say, hey, you know, we may not really want to do this, but we have no choice. We have no choice, yeah. and the legislature then has no choice. Right. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's also a very piecemeal way of addressing issues because you might have a lawsuit that's bought, 
and you get lots of funds, for example, for um, psychiatric institutions, but then there's less left over for child welfare. So it's not a very holistic or structural way of dealing with all the problems and how they're interconnected. Yeah. Um, so why don't we talk about something that's arguably even even more complicated and, and still unresolved, and that is, I guess, starting with the Callahan decision in New York, uh, talking about sort of class action suits as it relates to the right to shelter and how uh, where that started and, and how that's played out. So that's another example of where the legislature was doing nothing or, you know, it's also an example of of how we identify social problems and which ones we're going to attack. Because in any given time, there's lots of social problems and we give attention to only a few of them. There's a lack of resources, just a lack of um, bandwidth energy to able to attack every social problem. So that's an example where it took a lawyer who was passionate about this issue, um, who brought a lawsuit And then that escalated into a series of lawsuits in different parts of the country and changes in both legislation. You had the McKinney-Vento Act that came in after these right to shelter cases. So it's a very good example of how the courts can be used to define a problem, to give it a name, to give it recognition and notice, and then to trigger all sorts of um, solutions outside the court system even um, to address a problem. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the Callahan decision in particular and what that's meant in New York City and and housing and homelessness uh, in the city? Well, it's interesting because the Callahan um, decision was a preliminary decision from the judge in the in the cold of the winter, um, because as an attorney, you're allowed to go in and, and argue irreparable harm and likelihood of success on the merits. And then you wait for the court's decision, um, but you want to do something um, because courts can take a while to make a decision. But what it did was it triggered a reaction, and it was very short on the law, that decision. Um, it, it, it just it, it talked about a provision in the state constitution duty to aid the needy, but it was mostly concerned with the circumstances of homelessness and the facts of homelessness and what was going on in the streets. But what it did is it triggered the State Department of Social Services um, to do something about homelessness, and it, it started a, a several decades long discussion, often um, um, an intense um, adversarial discussion about how to solve the problem of homelessness. But it resulted in, again, like the the case that we talked about with um, psychiatric institutions, it resulted in very detailed agreements um, to provide a certain amount of beds, a certain amount of facilities. Um, sheets, pillows, all sorts of things, very, very detailed, granular stuff um, that transformed the shelter system in New York City and triggered cases to protect the homeless homeless families in the same way. It tackled the issue of um, not just denying home emergency housing, but putting families in emergency housing that was way below standard and very dangerous. Um, and so it triggered a wholesale change in how homeless families were treated. Um, I know when I first started getting involved in this litigation, we used to I used to represent people on welfare, and there was a system for dealing with that. But but when people came in and that were homeless and were being told, for example, out in Nassau County, well, here we'll get you on a train. You can go to the city and ask for shelter there. Um, that there was a total non-acknowledgement of the problem. Right. That this was just something that was understood wasn't going to be addressed um, in any large way by the social service agency. Uh, so it really took the ability to see this as a problem that had a solution somewhere 
mm-hmm. um, and to frame it in a way in the courts through creative lawyering in the most positive light. The idea of taking statutes and holding people accountable to what those statutes said and interpreting them in a way that helped poor people. Right. Now, this is a little bit outside the boundaries of, of the book, but uh, a lot of those, those negotiations uh, about sort of implementing uh, that, that putative right to shelter were uh, done by Steve Banks when he was head of the Legal Aid Society in New York. Steve, of course, is now a director of the Human Resources Administration. He's gone right. from, from pushing outside the system to try to enact that kind of change to actually trying to implement it from the inside. Um, do, you have, do you have sort of thoughts about that I think that was one of the best things that happened <laughs> um, in the sense that, you know, because I have I work closely with legal aid on several cases as an expert witness. Um, and I was involved in a case while this was going on um, that had to do with um, people with disabilities being denied public assistance. And, you know, you spend a lot of time on court cases <laughs> and it takes years and in one fell swoop, appointing someone like Steve Banks, who spent a lot of times on um, court cases, he came in and he, he, in my in my opinion, really was able to move that bureaucracy and change how it ran. Yeah. So even though he was working within the restrictions of the federal laws and state laws, for example, that required sanctioning of families who were um, alleged to have violated the work rules, he managed to to greatly reduce the number of sanctions that were being imposed on families. He put in um, work programs that were designed to really help people become independent um, and to to really attend to all their needs and to understand what was going on and what kinds of help they needed. So I think that his, um, you, you know, his appointment was for us advocates, a wonderful thing. And, you know, part of me was skeptical that he could take a bureaucracy um, that functioned like HRA does um, and make changes. And I think that it's been hard and there's still problems, um, but that I think that's a great way to make change. Um, So the last uh, chunk of the book, as as we noted earlier, talks about uh, the Supreme Court and sort of, of, you know, how it's constituted, how it's functioned. And you focus a lot of your attention on uh, race cases, first starting out with Brown v. Board and talking about uh, integration um, and then second, move on to talking about racial profiling. So again, why don't we take those in turn? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the court and Brown and schools integration and, and again, sort of how we should think about them as policy actors and what the impact has been on, on poor and low-income communities of color in particular? So when you look at those cases, it, it has several lessons. I mean, one lesson is that the Supreme Court can um, – transform institutions in a society because that's what it did with Brown v. Board of Education. Um, It was a very calculated campaign. I I think the book talks about sort of the earlier cases Mm -hmm. that this is not sort of random, but this is a planned campaign where where it started out in higher education um, and people who were trying to become professionals or get a higher education degree and being denied access to um, certain of those programs. And that through a succession of cases, um, it then filtered down to the public schools and you ended up with Randry Board of Education. So it's an example of, of the immense power of the court to transform institutions. And you can also see in these cases, when you start with the early cases and then come up to the present or the, the near present, 
um, that it very much depends on who's on the court. So that you had a period of time where integration is going full speed and the courts are very much behind that. And then you have the Rehnquist court coming in and a more conservative court. And then you have a pullback and you have cases that were being reinterpreted to make integration plans harder to achieve. So I think it also teaches you the power of the court both ways, um, that it could it could very much transform institutions and it could also choose to pull back from that transformation as the composition of the court changes. And what's so fascinating about the Supreme Court is that everything is cloaked in the language of law. So you read these very long decisions. So unlike a legislature who doesn't really have to explain in writing, and oftentimes at all, the, the rationale behind their decisions, the courts have to. And in the Supreme Court, you have to explain it in terms of the law. But as you read these decisions, you can see the drama, you can see the passion, you could see a lot of social facts that the court is using. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an interesting process for people to understand the Supreme Court. Yes, it's a legal institution writing legal opinions, but it also is very much an ideological institution. As much as we try to say, no, it isn't, judges are umpires. Um, that it very much has to do with the values of a judge, the values in society at a given time as reflected by the court. And so that battles over who is to become a justice are very important big battles. I mean, do you, do you think that part of the, I think it is fair to say that, that Americans do in fact still hold to this notion that judges are, they're neutral, they're impartial, they're unbiased, they're apolitical, that even if they have preferences, those don't influence their decisions. Do you think that that uh, adherence to that myth is precisely because they cloak their arguments in this technocratic language that they have to root it in the law. And I think most people don't know you can make the law say anything you want to, to a right. point, yes? Point, right, that's right. You know, that's an interesting question also about whether people do view the courts or judges as ideological free, um, whether they are still a respected branch of government or more respected, say, than yeah. the other branches of government. And I think you'd probably have to somewhat distinguished between the levels of court. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a really interesting question because um, on the level of the Supreme Court, I think if not said outright, most people understand the ideology and the choices that are made in the Supreme Court and would say that especially when you see the battles for um, different appointments. We see that now, that, that in, the, in Obama couldn't get his pick through, and the list of, of judges for the Trump administration are very much conservative. So I think people know it's, it's ideology at stake um, and that judges aren't neutral on that level. Um, and then, so fine, why don't we turn our attention to... Uh, talking about racial profiling and stop and frisk. And I think that it might be particularly useful to talk about that, given that there has been at least some discussion in the Trump campaign about creating a that of nationalizing to some extent the, the stop and frisk program. It was uh, perhaps sort of most uh, vigorously instituted in New York City, but we've seen it play out elsewhere. So what's what what is the practice? What does the law say about it? And how do you think about the possibility of nationalizing it? You know, so what's interesting about the, the jurisprudence on stop and frisk is that 
when you look at when compared to the integration cases where <clears throat> there was a lot of dissent, the judges weren't always unanimous on it. Um, the stop and frisk cases are surprisingly more um, unified yeah. and that in, in this particular area, even liberal justices <laughs> have had somewhat of a blind spot as to the implications of what the um, police do and whether you, sh you can water down probable cause and stop people on the street based on reasonable suspicion. And, and that they have over the years through a series of cases, given the police more and more power to use these kinds of tactics. Now, it is true that that this is under Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, what is considered an unreasonable search and seizure, a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. Um, racial profiling is saying that it's being done in terms of race, um, and that's another part of the Constitution. So there's still protections there, even when you interpret the Fourth Amendment as allowing more police power, you still have the 14th Amendment saying, but you can't do it based on discrimination and based on race. However, the decisions under the Fourth Amendment have been easier for racial profiling to happen and have given the police more power, whether it's to stop a motorist, um, to stop a car and order the passenger out of the car, um, and to conduct certain seizures or searches in ways that, um, for example, if it's a traffic violation, that's considered probable cause to then move on and, and do more in that particular stop. Um, so I think what the Supreme Court has done in its jurisprudence, it has um, really opens up the doors for police to act in a certain way. Right. And that, that those ways, perhaps not so surprisingly, wind up being discriminatory. Yes. And there's also a tone deafness in the court. Um, there was just a recent case, Utah v. Strait, that... Um, has and that was the case I believe that talked about um, using a traffic violation. So so they stopped a motorist. Not they had no basis really to stop the motorist. They they had seen them leave a home um, where they thought drug dealing was going on, but there was nothing about that person that made them think that they were drug dealing. Mm -hmm. And so they stop him, and then they do a search and they find um, a traffic violation and then they use that which many people have it could be speeding it could be you know any kind of ticket um and they use that as the the probable cause to start searching right and so you can imagine a regime where any motorist can be stopped and targeted right but you saw in that particular case, Sotomayor did an amazing dissent that talked about what this means in the real world and how this changes relationships between police and communities and how discriminatory it can be. But for the most part, you have a court that's not tuned in to what that actually means and the implications, the ramifications of allowing that kind of wider power for the police. Yeah. Um do you have a, a, a read on the extent to which those practices have or have not changed under the de Blasio administration? So my understanding that they have changed and, and that it's been a positive change and that it hasn't resulted in more crime, which is what some of the um, controversy was about initially. Right. But, it, you know, it's also local police enforcement. So I'm not quite sure. I mean, this is sort of the topsy-turvy world we live in now. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how the federal government would make this a policy um, across the country. Because who are, who literally, who are the officers who would be carrying it out, right? Well, it's local officers, right. and, and it's each jurisdiction sets the policy. So you have a policy in New York City. 
Um, and so that's why it changed under de Blasio. Um, so that would be true throughout. But, you know, the, the federal government also in past years has collected statistics and did reports and, and you know, so they, they are an important sort of influence on how policing should be done. But ultimately, I don't, they can't tell New York City to impose um, racial profiling or a stop and frisk. So there would there would be no legal basis for, say, the FBI issuing a directive to local law enforcement agencies. There's there's no formal authority that contained within any federal statute that would give give the national government the power to do that. You know, to your knowledge, not that I know of. I mean, you know, we have this system of federalism where you have parallel governments. Right. right? And it's not as if the FBI supervises the local police. Um, in fact, they're sometimes competitive over what crimes they go after. <laughs> uh, so in that sense, I mean, that's sort of the message from the election, too. Like if you live in a state of New York, then things might proceed in terms of New York based laws and interests. You will be in a more protected status um, in a better situation than somebody in a more conservative state. Uh, I'm Stephen Pimper. You're listening to the New Books Network, and I'm speaking with Vicki Lenz. Vicki's the author of Poor Justice, How the Poor Fare in Court, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. And as we uh, finish up our conversation with Vicki, Vicki, is there anything um, is there anything that, that we've glossed over that you think is important to sort of, of talk about with our listeners, either about the book or about sort of the, 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 the principles in general or maybe the experience of poor and low-income people uh, in the court system more specifically? I think the one thing I would want to emphasize is that poor people probably have more contact with the court system than a lot more affluent people. Yeah. And that it really intervenes in their daily lives, whether it be the welfare, child welfare, the criminal justice system, um, that it's something that really affects how poor people are treated, the quality of their lives. So it's something that people who work trying to help disenfranchised people should be really aware of. I mean, we haven't touched on a lot of different areas that affect the poor, whether it is the criminal justice system or housing court or many other things that happen um, within the court system. So I think it's something that advocates or social service um, people need to be aware of, that the role that the courts play in the lives of poor people. Yep. And for, for a lot of folks, I mean, this is this is the institution of the state that is most central in their lives. Exactly. Um, and yes. I think that, that that people for whom that's not the reality don't quite appreciate what that means. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so. Um, so what are the, the, the issues that are catching your attention at the moment? And if you've got sort of, of notions of what the next project is, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so one of the things that I'm looking at now is I'm back in family court um, and I'm very interested, again, in this whole idea of if what a judge does in court affects the outcome of a case. Um, so I'm looking at a project that looks at the different styles and behaviors um, of judges in family court to see if judges with a better courtside manner <laughs> have mm. better outcomes. Um, you know, and so and to me, it's sort of a, in some ways a small way, 
but in other ways, a large way of trying to improve the experience of poor people in the courts. The courts are there. They're going to have to interact with them. And on a more granular level, in the courtroom day by day, are there ways that judges can behave and act that make the experience fairer? Yeah. Um, and so that's my next sort of research project. I'm also very interested in looking at um, all that I've done from a gender lens. Um, so I looked at it mostly on a class-based poor people lens and most of the people in the family court and the welfare system are women. So now I'm, I'm stepping back a bit to look at all of that I've observed and think about how gender, um, race and class intersect within the courtroom. Fascinating. And whether there's sort of something interesting going on and we've got sort of, of women, low income women segregated into the civil court system and low income men pushed into the criminal court system and maybe what that means. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel on New Books Network. We have been speaking with Vicki Lenz. Vicki's the author of Poor Justice, How the Poor Fare in Court. Vicki, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.